I ask you to turn to First Chronicles 13, which is a bit of a deviation from the plan that I had laid out a few months back um, because of a stronger burden that over the last four or five weeks has been growing as we prepare to sit around the Lord's table this morning. Uh, a year ago, I had the privilege of team teaching with several brothers here in the congregation through First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And there was one passage that I taught a year ago that has become really an increasing burden for me to preach to our whole congregation. And it's this passage, 1 Chronicles 13 through 16. We will read excerpts, um, though not the entirety of the four chapters. The historical account of First and Second Chronicles covers about a half a millennium, 500 years, roughly from about 1000 BC, when King Saul began to reign, till about 500 BC, the account ends several decades after Jerusalem has been decimated. It begins with a long genealogy, and then in chapter 10, there's a brief overview of the reign of Saul, and then a lengthy overview of David's reign and a lengthy overview of Solomon's reign. And then the last portion of this historical account focuses on Israel's decimation, the decline of the kingdom. It ends with not only the decimation of Jerusalem in 586 BC, but the account actually ends, the last few verses, and about 50 years later, in 538 BC, where a remnant in Babylon is called to return to Jerusalem and to begin rebuilding the temple. The whole account actually centers on the temple. David's preparations to build the temple take up many chapters. Solomon's construction of the temple and dedication of the temple take up many chapters. Israel's ignoring of the temple is the main reason for their decimation. And the destruction of the temple is really the climax of the narrative. I think it's helpful, just before we dig in, to just step back and ask, why does so much of biblical history center on the history of Israel, on Israel's kings, on Israel's temple, on its capital city, Jerusalem. I mean, why isn't biblical history broader in its scope? Why don't we have chapters in our Bible that focus on what was going on in China in the ancient world and what was going on in India and in the Americas in the ancient world? Why isn't this more of a world history? Why is this so particularly focused on Israel? It's a good question. The answer is because of the first few pages of the Bible. Because God determined that it would be through Israel that he would restore blessing to all peoples on earth. It's because the temple in Jerusalem provided the educational model, you might call it, the educational model for how any human can be reconciled to the one true God. The temple was the prototype which Jesus, Earth's Messiah, Earth's King, would replace 
It was the educational model telling us what the Savior of the world would do. There is such a limited focus on the history of Israel and Israel's king and Israel's capital city, Jerusalem, because in the design, in the plan of God, it's there in Jerusalem that he will pay for the sins of the world. It's there in Jerusalem that he will conquer death that has covered the world. It is there in Jerusalem that he will once for all reconcile people to himself from every tribe, language, and nation. It's forever there in Jerusalem that the king will reign in peace. In God's plan, Jerusalem is the center of world history. That's why history focuses on it. Now, I've asked you to turn to 1 Chronicles 13, In these chapters that we're going to overview today, David has just become king in Israel. We learn that he's surrounded himself with strong leaders, and we have learned in the chapters that just precede that he is trusting God's plan to bring about world redemption through Israel, through his people Israel. Now I need to point out that the central focus of these chapters is actually one object that sat in the center of the temple, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. This was a small crate that was at the center of the cubicle room in the middle of the temple. It had been at the center of the cubicle room that was in the tabernacle that went around and was set up and taken down like a tent prior to the temple. We might not call it in our language today the Ark of the Covenant. That might seem a little bit antiquated, though I think all of us get it. We might call it the chest that contained the promised vows between God and his people. This chest that contained the covenant between God and his people. It was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a wooden box that was plated with gold. It's about four feet long, about two feet wide, about two feet high, a very small piece of furniture. And in the temple, it represented the footstool of God's throne. It was designed to remain in that holiest room of all, and over it stood two massive sculptures, golden sculptures of cherubim, of angels, to symbolize that God's presence was invisibly and majestically surrounded by, guarded by, and praised by angels greater than we can fathom. The room was actually about, I'm saying approximately, the size of our auditorium. This way, the ceiling would be a little bit higher. It would go from about me to the, to the balcony front tiny little chest sitting down here as the footstool of the throne and two massive angels going up on either side touching the walls and touching their wings in the center massive angels protecting and praising the presence of the invisible god this little room with this chest at the center of it pictured that the only way you could approach the holy God 
the one true God of creation, was through perfect obedience to the law. Perfect obedience to the covenant that was inside that ark. It's that ark that's the focus of these chapters. If you don't understand the significance of the ark, you will miss the significance of these chapters. Now I want to walk through it in three parts. The first part is chapter 13. Under King David, the ark was transported from one city, Kiriath-Jerim, to Jerusalem. But that journey was abruptly halted. That's what chapter 13 is about. David became king when Israel was still divided. It had been divided tribally under Saul. And David meets with several representatives in the nation, and they agree that we need to centralize the nation in Jerusalem. Centralizing the nation involved building the temple there. The first steps of centralization, actually, according to verse 2, if you notice, involved the relocation of many of the Levites who were scattered throughout in many cities to come to Jerusalem. They would be the employees in the temple. It also, verse 3, involved the relocation of the ark. The journey is about seven miles So very easy to accomplish, walking at a normal pace over a few hours. Many of the Levites came to Jerusalem. David commissioned some of them to transport the ark. This procession was led by an orchestra of instruments and a massive crowd of citizens. Let's read verses 8, 9, and 10. And David and all Israel were rejoicing before God with all their might, with song, and lyres, and harps, and tambourines, and cymbals, and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark. And Uzzah died there before God. At one point in the journey, the cattle that were pulling the cart, the cart that was carrying the ark, they tripped, they stumbled, the balance shifted. Now we have to realize that the ark was designed to be carried by Levites on poles, not on an ox cart. When the oxen stumbled and the cart started to tip, Uzzah, one of the two Levites who was driving the cart, reached back to keep the ark from falling off the cart and hitting the ground. I think he meant well. I think he was trying to protect this precious piece of furniture. But touching the ark was in direct violation of God's explicit command that had been known in Israel for centuries. You can see it in Numbers. You can see it repeated in 1 Samuel. And for this violation, God killed Uzzah on the spot. Even though, from all we can tell, it was well-meaning. Look at verses 11 and 12. The chronicler records that David got angry at God. And David ordered the ark to be left on the property of a musician 
one of the Levitical musicians named Obed-Edom. Why? Look at verse 13. Quote, David was afraid of God that day. David needed that. And we're told in verse 14 that the ark sat on that Levitical musician's property for three months. The transportation halted. The celebration halted. David and the whole nation needed a reminder. It's the first major lesson of these chapters. The God whose presence was represented by that ark is himself majestically holy and terrifyingly holy. And we must not minimize God's holiness. As you read through this account, Uzzah's death is not like an incidental tangent. It's central. David needs to centralize the government in Jerusalem. And his plans are put on hold. The king's plans are put on hold for three months because of Uzzah's death. Why? In order to highlight for the whole nation that Israel's God is majestically and terrifyingly holy. Now, I think there's an instinct for us as readers that is intentional. Any reader who, like David, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands for how many of you thought this, but the narrative drives us to feel this. If you read the narrative and you think, God overreacted. I I mean, kill a guy? A well-meaning guy? If you think God overreacted, you need the message of this chapter. You're minimizing the terrifying and majestic holiness of God. The ark represented the God who created the universe. Do you realize that it is as possible for you and me, a sinner, a disobedient rebel against God, it's as possible for us to touch the throne of God as it is for an ice cube to touch the sun. Scripture says, 1 Timothy 6, God lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No one has ever seen him nor ever will. God had told Moses centuries before this event that it was impossible for anyone to see his face and live. God is holy. He is superior to any other. He is uniquely pure and exalted. He is enthroned among cherubim and seraphim. We might need reminders. Cherubim are mighty, majestic, angelic guards. Seraphim are flame-like angels who continually praise God, saying, you're holy, holy, holy. Utterly unique. There's no one like you. God has been surrounded with cherubim and seraphim. 
There's no one like him in sovereignty, no one like him in power, no one like him in integrity, no one like him in glory. And to disobey and disrespect the throne of this majestically great king like Uzzah did invites the just wrath of this God, just like Uzzah experienced. I think many people read this account and react like David did, with anger. God, why are you making such a big deal of this? The right reaction, and it might take you three months to get to this point. That's how long the ark sat there. This might not happen instantly. might take you three months. The right response to reading this is this. God, if you executed Uzzah for his disobedience, how is it that everyone else around that ark stayed alive? God, how is it that me, a sinner like me, who's defied your authority and disobeyed you so many times, how is it that I'm still alive? You're coming to think rightly about the one true God when that's how you respond. The late R.C. Sproul explained this in his classic book, The Holiness of God. He says, the Ark of the Covenant was being carried in a cart. This was not the way it was designed to be carried. It should have been on poles, on shoulders of priests. When one of the oxen stumbled, the ark looked like it was going to fall. And Uzzah keeps it from tipping in the mud. God's reaction was not, thank you, Uzzah. No, God killed Uzzah instantly. Uzzah believed that mud would desecrate the ark. But mud is just dirt and water obeying God. Mud's not evil. God's law was not meant to keep the ark pure from the earth, but from the dirty touch of human hand. Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than the dirt. And God said no. We must not minimize the terrifying holiness of God. We must respect our holy God more than life itself. The second facet of these chapters is three months later, according to the next two chapters, King David finally finished leading the transportation of the ark to Jerusalem. Chapter 14 is a brief interruption to the account that basically explains the the solidification of David's reign. He has an ally, he has sons, he has many military victories, but the writer is actually using this little interlude to say, The ark sat there for a long time. In chapter 15, then, the ark finally finished its journey to Jerusalem. This is the journey that had been halted by Uzzah's death. From all the details of planning in chapter 15, it really seems to scream to the reader, David wasn't prepared last time in chapter 13 when he tried to bring this ark. He went through a lot of preparations, took a lot of care. It seems that Uzzah's death compelled him to move from anger to submission, humble submission to the Lord. David learned to regard the Lord as terrifyingly holy, and it was during these three months that he made diligent preparations. He reconstructed the tabernacle in verse 1. And he gathered nearly 900 Levites, 
assigning to each of them their responsibilities. In verses 2 through 15, he gives out those responsibilities to the 900 Levites. And then starting in verse 16, he begins performing music around the tabernacle that he's built. And he orders the guarding of the ark in verses 23 and 24. And now, after he has humbled himself before the terrifyingly holy God, verse 25 says, we're going to read down through verse 29. This is 15, chapter 15, verse 25. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of the thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the Ark. And the singers, and Kenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers, and David wore a linen ephod, it's like a tunic. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. And as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David, her husband, dancing and rejoicing. And she despised him in her heart. It's interesting to observe that Israel's leading musicians sang with all kinds of instruments. It's interesting that the worship of the terrifyingly holy God involved singing and dancing to the accompaniment of strings and percussion and wind instruments. This passage is very much like Psalm 150, and it informs our approach as a congregation to using all kinds of instruments in accompaniment of congregational singing, glad congregational singing, in worship of our terrifyingly holy God. It's appropriate. And this little incident with McCall urges us to be particularly careful of criticizing another believer's exuberant worship of the holy God. The wrong reaction to the enthusiastic and celebratory worship, corporate worship, of the one true God is typified by McCall. Rather than focusing on God, this terrifyingly holy, majestic, covenant-keeping God, McCall was filled with personal bitterness toward her husband. You can read more about it in 1 Samuel 6. It resulted in excessive concern. He's wearing linen. It might possibly convey that he's immodest. It might possibly convey the way he's dancing. It's like one of those low-class servants. He's the king. Doesn't he know better? She turns nitpicky. Sadly, I've known many believers, like McCall, who gather with the church, personal bitterness filling their hearts, and they nitpick at other worshipers. And sadly, I have been that person. 
more than once. God forgive me. The second section teaches us that true worship of the majestically holy God involves lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This terrifyingly holy God deserves our enthusiastic, wholehearted praise. The third and final section lands on this theme in chapter 16. Third, when the ark finally arrived in Jerusalem, King David arranged for congregational thanksgiving. It's interesting that King David doesn't say, ha, we made it. God didn't kill us. He didn't end in fear and dread. I'm glad that's over. We're moving on. No. He had gotten right with this majestically terrifying holy God through contrition. He had been forgiven and changed by this holy God. He gets to Jerusalem and he offers this God thankfulness. Interestingly, the psalm in chapter 16 is a combination of three psalms, Psalm 105, Psalm 96, and Psalm 106. It is full of thankfulness to God. The center of it, verses 13 through 22 of chapter 16, verses 13 to 22, emphasize the eternal covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then the last portion of it, look at chapter 16, verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth, Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. All the peoples. Doesn't it sound like how our worship service started this morning? For great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. He is the one true God to be worshipped throughout creation by people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so David goes on to say, verse 28, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of all the people's glory and strength. He's calling on all the earth to worship the one true God who has created the world and entered into covenant with Israel in order to save the world. This monumental psalm composition directed the hearts and the minds of God's people onto his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through which blessing would come to the whole world. The promises through which, when God fulfilled these promises, he would bring to an end the curse that covered creation. And that's why the thanksgiving should climactically extend from Israel to all peoples. I learned from this. You must continually thank your holy, praiseworthy, covenant-making God until he fulfills every covenant commitment he has made. This is where we end. When, When was God next, like the next major step of fulfilling this covenant, 
bringing blessing to all nations. When, when was that going to come in terms of David? I mean, it's, it's a thousand years in the future before Jesus comes. And David is thanking his covenant-making, covenant-keeping God a thousand years before Jesus comes. A thousand years before Pentecost. And the message starts more than ever spreading to all peoples on earth. A thousand years before, David's praising his God. Dry County, that is so instructive for us. So instructive for us. We need to be praising and thanking our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God before we see the promises fulfilled. We're going to praise him after. We certainly are going to praise him after. But David and the whole nation of Israel in chapter 16 model praising the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God whose blessing is going to come to all the nations. They're doing it a thousand years before the next monumental step in it. There's a lot of trials during those thousand years. Horrible trials. And they're committing to praising this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God until he fulfills every covenant he's made. That's so instructive for us. I end by talking about a believer that has given us a great gift over the last 200 years. It's Edward Mote. He captured the way that Christians sing while waiting on God to fulfill every promise. He said his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Edward didn't grow up in a Christian home. His parents owned a bar in London, and Edward rarely remembered them being awake during the day. He heard the gospel in the middle of his teenage years, and by 18 had publicly confessed Christ and been baptized. He was apprenticed to a cabinet maker, and he worked in that industry for almost 40 years. He was in his late 20s when he was walking to work meditating on scripture. In his own words, he says, As I went up to Holborn, I had the chorus, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand in my head. And he said that before the end of the day, he had written four stanzas to go along with it. The next Sunday, a Christian friend asked if Edward would come and visit his wife who was sick. Edward came, and he sang this little poem that he had written for this woman who was dying. His wife asked if he could leave the poem with her, and God used it to minister comfort to her. And he said, over the next few months, my mind kept going back to that dying woman's case, and my attention to the words of this song, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. They were more arrested. Later that year, he said, I thought maybe God could use it 
so I had a thousand printed for distribution, and he sent one copy to the Spiritual Magazine, that's what it was called, and they published it the next year in 1824. So we might be on the 200th anniversary or something like that of the writing of it. And the title he gave was The Immutable Basis of the Sinner's Hope. When Christians feel like it's too hard, we failed too much, there's so much in our past, God's judgment has fallen, we have to go to the covenants that God has made. We have to go to our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And we must review the covenant that he's made. We must believe it. We must thank him for it in song. And I think encourage others with it. Even before we see it all come to fulfillment. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. And I'm going to praise Christ, the solid rock on which I stand. Let's bow for prayer. Oh God, I pray that you would strengthen us as we see your majestic, terrifying holiness and humble ourselves before you. The only way, Father, that we can approach you is through Jesus, through the blood of Jesus that all those sacrifices in the temple represented. We can approach you through Jesus. Jesus alone. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place as the lamb provided by your Father to take away our sins. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be exalted even as people who are sitting in here this morning who have never humbled themselves, repented, and turned to you. God, I pray that today they would turn. I pray, Jesus, that you would save them as they call out on you to save them for your blood to cover them. Oh God, I pray that you would lead every one of us right now who knows you to commit to praising you through the storms. You have made promises to us, promises that have been being fulfilled for thousands of years, promises that you are going to bring to completion. God, fill us with faith so that we'd be able to exuberantly thank you until you fulfill every promise. May we not wait until when you fulfill every promise. For your glory and for our good, I pray. Amen.